gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, there have been a bunch of books and articles in the last, I don't know, year or so, two years, all about marriage and divorce and divorce and marriage and 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 all this kind of stuff. And people keep asking me, should we or my guy Denton, my you know, assistant, asked me, should we get this person or that person to come on and talk about it? And I'm always like, no, Brad Wilcox's book is coming out soon, and we got to have him on, so let's just wait for that. So finally, Brad w- Wilcox, who's a sociologist at the University of Virginia, um, he is the head of... National Marriage Project at UVA, yes. The National Marriage Project at UVA, um, a colleague of mine at the American Enterprise Institute, and the author of a new, uh, much-discussed book, Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save civilization. Uh, Brad, welcome back to The uh, Remnant. It's good to be here today, Jonah. First question, as always, with new books, although you kind of gave it away in the title. Uh, What's your book about? So it's about kind of this big paradox, Jonah. The paradox is that on the one hand, we're seeing the sort of real-world fortunes of marriage fall in terms of the numbers of folks who are getting married, really. Um, And so that's kind of a, the, the, the bad news. Um, but the good news is the science kind of is telling us that marriage matters uh, for kids and adults um, and may even matter more than ever. You know, so we see, for instance, when it comes to college graduation, that kind of the, the tie between marriage and college graduation for kids is getting stronger in recent years. And we're seeing some evidence, too, from um, what's called the American Family Survey, the kind of like the links between life satisfaction or, or happiness, in a sense. Um, and marriage are getting, you know, stronger. So we're just kind of living in this paradoxical moment where this core institution, I think, might matter more than ever, you know, in a day and age when we're seeing more um, economic inequality, we're seeing more technological distraction, we're seeing more atomization, you know, more secularization, all that stuff playing out. And so it's in that context that having the benefit of a spouse and kids, I think, becomes perhaps even more consequential um, for adults and then also for kids. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, our colleague and friend Yuval Levin writes a lot about institutions. I'm kind of obsessed with institutions, and the metaphor that always comes to my mind is that that institutions are of various kinds are basically like trees in a wetland. They um, they prevent soil erosion. They hold the ground together, right? They provide ecosystems for other things to to thrive. And if you uproot the trees, you basically get deserts in all sorts of places, including like rainforests. And there's no institution, it seems to me that is better at preventing societal erosion than marriage because it really does it's it's the bit it's annoying because politicians have such cliches about it's the bedrock of our civilization but just because they're cliches doesn't mean it's not true what are the biggest threats if you had to prioritize or give a powerpoint presentation they said only give us three or five or whatever what are the biggest threats to or reasons for the the degradation of marriage Yeah. So I think um, when I think about kind of the biggest factors that are driving uh, marriage rates um, down in America, um, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, One is what I call kind of the Midas mindset. It's a kind of individualism. It's a sort of idea that what really matters for us is education, money, 
kind of building your own your own brand, often attached to a certain kind of understanding of work. Um, and it's privileging, you know, a kind of basically me first mindset over kind of marriage and family. So that'd be kind of one thing. And it's, again, it's like an expression of what was called in sociology a while back, expressive individualism. I think a second factor that's been pretty important, pretty consequential, obviously, is growing secularization. Um, we see that people who are less religious are less likely to get married, um, less likely to stay married, less likely to have children. So that's, I think, one of the factors that is kind of driving this um, this story. A third factor is kind of the shift in the economy away from a manufacturing and towards an information economy that has ended up kind of disadvantaging uh, men who don't have college degrees, making them less attractive as mates and husbands and making their families more vulnerable to divorce and instability uh, as well. And um, I think the government's had a hand too in, in disadvantaging uh, marriage oftentimes in working class and poor communities, just in terms of the way in which welfare policies are are uh, set up in this country. Um, and then I think the, the newest and kind of final factor that I'm most concerned about is sort of the rise of big tech and the way in which um, these devices that we you know, spend too much time on, um, social media and, and also gaming, are kind of driving people away from that in-person, real-world socializing that's so important and finding a spouse and keeping your marriage strong. And then also, I think this is an under-recognized piece of this too, driving young women and young men apart and doing so both kind of by ideological means, kind of by giving a lot of young women reasons to be more skeptical or even hostile to men as a class, certainly judging from my Twitter feed, <laughs> um, or um, pushing men kind of in, in, in that direction too with people like Andrew Tate, obviously. Um, and then the other piece though is that social media is linked to a lot more anxiety and depression for young women. And gaming, I think, is um, is undercutting young men's capacity to do well in school, focus on work in their early 20s, and to develop the kinds of physical and social um, endowments and virtues that would make them attractive to the opposite sex. Um, so those are the kinds of factors that I think are really heavily implicated in what I call the closing of the American heart. And that is just dramatic declines in dating, marriage, and childbearing. Yeah, so let's let's take the last one first. I mean, which is tied into a couple of the others that you mentioned. Insofar as you know, my wife often brings this up, often as a slight dig at me, but you know, so be it. About women, poor women, um, minority women, not wanting to get married because they see men as less of a partner, never mind a provider, and more of another kid to take care of. Exactly. You can see how gaming <laughs> is one part of that. I mean, it's just like it, it's it's probably very difficult to seem super attractive to an ambitious young woman. All you have to talk about is how well you did on Call of Duty that day. But I guess the question is, if you had to wait, the drivers of this, and I, I obviously it's chicken and egg, it's both and, not either or. But like, is it the changing attitudes of women about marriage that is driving more of it, or is it the changing? role of men that is making men seem like less of a value a re, providing less return on investment of actually marriage um i assume your answer is going to be both and but like if 
if you could fix one, <laughs> which would it be? Yeah, it's a great question, Jonah. And I, and I focus more in the book on kind of trying to fix men, but recognizing that I'm a sociologist, right? And so I'm trying to think about it just, it's not kind of this random thing that, you know, so many young men and so many teenage boys are floundering. They just, just, just you know, like, I think conservatives sometimes make the mistake of talking about like culture and some kind of like, you know, abstract, you know, um, a, a sociological way. I'm thinking, what are the institutional contexts where so many teenage boys and young men are floundering? And I mean, when I, you know, had the sort of title floating in the, you know, in the internet, there was a critical New York Times piece about my book. And I was accused of scolding young women, you know, for um, this inability to get married um, or, or, and the kind of the implication was basically that they can't find any decent men out there. So they should not be, you know, in any way mm-hmm. kind of um, scolded for not being able to get married. But I think we have to think, why is it that young men are, are floundering? And I think it's partly because our schools are set up in ways that don't, you know, uh, really give boys an equal um, shot at flourishing in the classroom. And we've obviously known that from our colleague, Christina Hoff Summers work, you know, back in the day. Um, it's related to, to the way in which, as I just mentioned, um, you know, many big tech companies are basically offering products that distract men, um, and distract teenage boys from, um, you know, give them kind of the simulacra of being the white knight, you know, on an Xbox rather than the reality of being a white knight in the real world. Um, and it's also related to the fact that we don't in this culture today offer young men a clear and compelling vision of masculinity. Um, and so some of the same voices who are out there kind of decrying men's, um, you know, immaturity and their lack of, um, you know, skills and, and social, you know, virtues and their failure to really launch and to be gainfully employed are also the same voices that would be very reluctant um, to offer a clear and compelling vision for masculinity to young men or who are even regularly kind of attacking the idea that there is something like masculinity that, you know, should be, um, should be addressed and held up to young men. So those are, I think, three of the things that are kind of um, hampering the fortunes of our boys and young men. And we need to address all three of those things in terms of education, in terms of technology, and in terms of giving young men like a clear and compelling vision of masculinity that would make them flourish as, you know, as human beings and also would make them more attractive as partners and boyfriends and then as husbands as well. But doesn't this get to the, I mean, the larger problem that you were, you alluded to earlier about an increasingly secular society and, you know, there are uh, institutions, marriage is arguably the most important institution, but it is an institution that depends on other important institutions to thrive, right? Right. And so, it's very hard to find a way to model a good version of masculinity if no one's going to church or synagogue, right? And if nobody's participating in community events where the mature, responsible, chivalric men <laughs> are getting praise and attention and respect and the jackwads are getting scorn and derision. Because you need to be able to physically, you need to model that behavior somewhere. And if there's no platforms, no institutions to model that behavior, it becomes very difficult to, to send that message that you think you want to send yeah, out there. That's definitely true. Although I think certainly, I mean, and, and one of the stories in the, you know, in the book is about the way in which faith does provide, you know, families and men in particular kind of 
a family first model and way of life that I think does help men kind of grow up, become more responsible, more commitment worthy. And once they are married, more engaged in their families. And these are things that make, you know, women happier. In fact, there's no group of kind of married wives that are happier than wives who are kind of going to church or, you know, temple or synagogue with, with their husbands. Um, so that's certainly part of the answer to thinking about how do we kind of think about forging a, a more constructive model of masculinity and marriage for the 21st century. But it's also obviously important to appreciate the way in which in different eras, um, you know, civil society, pop culture, even obviously, you know, corporate America in terms of marketing, were giving a model of, of masculinity for better and for worse to, um, to men and still do that um, in ways too. And so I think we have to think about public schools, we have to think about marketing, um, we have to think about, you know, Hollywood, we have to think too about now social media and um, generating a kind of a constructive vision of masculinity that captures the imagination and the hearts and the minds of young men um, and moves them in the direction of being a good husband and a good father, a good worker, rather than kind of acting like a devotee of Andrew Tate. Yeah, so I, I'm obviously I'm entirely aligned with all of that, and I agree with that. At the same time, if if we're going to look at this as uh, you know that as generally small government people, right? Let's just stipulate. I don't know exactly where you come down on the spectrum of you know from libertarian to to whatnot, but there are limitations to what government can do in terms of compulsion to fix hearts and minds, right? And so, if you're just looking at this as a cultural strategy. Um, it's easier to talk about how men are, you know, poltroons and jabronis and need to get their act together. It's really easy for men to talk about how other men or boys need to man up, right? It is much harder. So that's the supply side argument, which I'm hundred percent on board with. There's the demand side problem of how do you convince women to make this leap? And that is a much harder thing, which converge everywhere from sounding sexist to mansplainy to handmaid's tale unfairly, depending on how you do it. But like it could still it can be very off-putting and and scare away a lot of women from having this conversation. If you start saying, even though the biggest problem or a, a easier to talk about problem is the 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 bat, poor supply of marriageable men. There's still the problem of the mindset of a lot of women who have turned marriage into, who have embraced this argument that marriage is an oppressive institution and bad for women. So how do you explain, how do you, how do you do this cultural persuasion argument towards those women? Right. So on the, on the first point, though, I think it's important to sort of um, recognize that the government does have some levers when it comes to culture. That are that are worth pulling, and those levers are obviously public education, um, school choice, um, in terms of giving you know kids access to often schools that do a better job of kind of like, and I've done some research on this, you know, forming young adults for a you know a family future, um, and then PSAs too. So there are way, not that the government's going to be you know necessarily the leading actor on all this, but the government can use the power that it already has, you know, to I think do a better job of kind of educating young adults about the value of marriage for both men and for women. Now, when it yeah, comes I to agree. I, I just want to clarify. I agree with that entirely. 
Uh, my old boss, Ben Wattenberg, he used to make this point about welfare and stuff. He's like, look, we can argue about what the government can do to fix things, but the government should at least adhere to the Hippocratic Oath and not hurt things. Do no harm, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I've talked, obviously, about the importance of addressing marriage penalties. We've done that, ironically, for, in, for, sorry, for income taxes, which obviously hit the upper half of the distribution a lot harder. We haven't really focused on addressing marriage penalties in our means-tested programs like Medicaid, for instance. So that's something we can do from a government perspective. But in terms of this, the question about women, I think it's a profoundly important question. And I do have a chapter on gender in, in the book. And one of the points that I make is that um, there's obviously a lot of discourse around gender and feminism in our culture today. But I suggest in terms of both... in in terms of talking to women today, women in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s uh, for the book, um, both married and unmarried, what I suggest is that there's a lot of, of flexibility today when it comes to marriage and the division of you know work inside and outside the home. I, and I don't find a story for women, for wives, that's better in terms of how she handles work. Okay, So that's kind of like the the sort of contemporary or progressive, in a sense, takeaway from the book. But I also find that women are still likely, even women who are on the left, you know, ideologically speaking, they're still more likely to gravitate towards men who are decisive, men who are ambitious, men who are physically strong, um, men who are reliable providers, men who make them feel protected, you know, both sort of physically secure and also like in social context like a party like the, the kind of guy who's like looking out for his girlfriend or his wife making sure that she feels comfortable that you know she's being well treated um in you know in some kind of you know social situation so what i'm saying to you jonah is that we have to also kind of look at what makes women happy in their relationships when they're dating what makes them happy in their marriages once they're married across the spectrum are things that we often classically think of as you know, masculine in terms of guys being, you know, more, um, uh, more assertive, more uh, ambitious, uh, stronger, more protective, and again, kind of having some professional, you know, orientation, um, and therefore, you know, being uh, counted on as reliable providers, so that they they don't end up these guys don't end up as like the the extra kid to use your wife's kind of thinking, which is too often the case now in many poor and working class communities where the girlfriends or the wives are actually the ones who are working more hours, making more money. And then they come home and their boyfriend or their husband is not working full time and is often uh, not sort of taking his share of housework and childcare on upon himself and is, you know, spending too much time on, on an Xbox. So this is kind of the, the challenge is that we live in a moment where we can't really see oftentimes, or can articulate, if you will, the truth before our very eyes. Now, is it still the case in 2024 that generally speaking, of course, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, um, you know, women are happier, wives are happier um, with men who do embody some classic masculine virtues, provided that, and this is the key kind of, you know, caveat here, um, that they are engaged both emotionally and practically in the relationship, you know, whether it's dating or marriage. And then if they have kids with the kids, and that's very clear in my data on gender too, women are happier across the spectrum ideologically when their husbands are super engaged dads. Now, how they divide up housework and how they divide up paid work, not so important. 
but women are happier with men who are emotionally and practically engaged in the marriage and with the kids. And so I kind of put this whole package together and talk about it as either like a family first marriage, you know, model for, for guys, or as a kind of a neo-traditional model for men that is most likely to engender a sense of happiness and satisfaction for women today. And so it does implicitly kind of give men a pretty clear um, model of the kinds of virtues they should be cultivating and often are not encouraged to, unfortunately, in today's um, world where there aren't clear guidelines and clear norms and clear expectations for men when it comes to, you know, masculinity in 2024. Yeah, but I mean, again, I find that all persuasive, but we're back on how men need to fix themselves, right? And which kind of illustrates the premise of my point maybe a little bit in that it's difficult to talk to women about how, again, at the, at the level of vast generalization, right? We're not saying, it is, we're not talking about individual people here. We're talking about at scale, trends, you know, statistical things. Sure, right. Um, but at the same time, there are women who are part of the problem too, right? In so far as, and it, partly it's, it's a disequilibrium thing, right? Because the men who are part of the problem are clustered at one end of the sort of the sociocultural world and the women who have sort of are the biggest cultural impediments to sort of fixing marriage tend to be college educated. You know, there's just this piece in the, in New York magazine, but this woman has this mental crisis and decides to get divorced. I feel like these stories are coming out all the time where college educated sort of more elite women, they're the ones who are doing the, women need a man like a fish needs a bicycle kind of spiel updated for the 2020s. The question I have still is like, how do you, how do you, how do you talk to them to tell them that not that they're wrong, right? Cause they might be right about themselves personally, but they're still kind of wrong, at least from my perspective. And I presume your perspective to speak generally about marriage based upon their own life, right? This is the, one of the problems we have in our culture where people love to extrapolate from their own personal preferences and desires and make sweeping statements about the culture generally. Um, and there's probably no place I can think of that is more true of that than the issue of marriage. Yeah. So what I, I, what I do say at the beginning of my book is I, I mentioned, you know, that there are voices uh, on the right now, like Andrew Tater, who are kind of discounting marriage from a man's perspective. They're saying it's a bad bet it's a bad investment. They're, you're going to end up divorced and miserable. This is kind of the new online right, you know, red pill right kind of take on marriage. But I also begin the book by talking about, and of course, the takeaway for, you know, for Andrew Tate and Pearl Davis and that whole crew is guys should just, you know, basically focus on getting strong, making money, having a good time and using, but not investing in the opposite sex. Okay. So it's a profoundly atomistic and anti-nuptial message. But to your question, Jonah, we're also getting a very similar message from elite liberals, most of whom are women, articulating this idea, which is that basically, again, you know, marriage is a bad deal. Um, it's, you know, it's oppressive. It's restrictive of freedom. It's going to make you miserable. It's going to be, you know, it's going to miserate you. Um, and so, again, there's kind of this message from elite liberals aiming primarily at women often from well-educated women, that is encouraging them to steer clear of marriage 
and telling them that the path to immiseration and misery is running right through marriage. And of course, the problem that I argue in the book with this whole approach, this perspective, is that they're neglecting the facts on the ground. And the facts on the ground are that there are no group of you know, women in America who are more prosperous than married women. And there's no group of women in America who are happier than married women, especially married moms, kind of look at the middle-aged group. Um, so they're, the message that they're kind of conveying in outlets like New York Magazine and outlets like the New York Times and in other comparable outlets, and also now on social media, of course, as well, is uh, as it relates to marriage and family life, you know, completely wrong. And if they're really interested in sort of advancing the welfare of women, um, they would tell us the truth, which is that both men and women on average are much more likely to be flourishing financially and emotionally when they're married and on the emotional front when they have kids. Um, So that's the frustration that I think many of us have with a lot of these mainstream media outlets is that they tell a very dark story about marriage and family um, and one that is kind of in the main uh, dead wrong. Yeah, so I I probably had malpractice here. I probably should have started earlier in the thing to have you walk through the evidence on this and how we know these things that we know about happiness, life satisfaction, all the rest. Um, Also, I think crucially important particularly if you're making this case to women, because I'm going to traffic and gross stereotypes here, um, positive outcomes for kids. Because I think that this is one of these things that mothers tend to put a lot of weight on is positive outcomes for their own children. Call me a sexist. (laughs) And so um, why don't you just sort of walk through what we know about this. Right. To be clear, you know, I was raised by a single mom and, you know, obviously many kids raised by single moms turn out fine. There are plenty of examples in obviously our public life, you know, from Barack Obama to Jeff Bezos, at least professionally, they did very well. Um, but we do know sociologically and, you know, and scientifically more generally that kids who are raised outside of an intact um, household with, you know, both their parents are more likely to, you know, to struggle. Um, we know that they're about 50% more likely to say that they're, they're sad or depressed, basically, you know, um, judging by some evidence I looked at for my book. The most striking thing, though, when it comes to that whole body of evidence for me is that when I was looking at this, you know, um, at this data for kids and boys in particular, what I found with my colleague, Dr. Wendy Wang, is that boys today or young men today are more likely to land in prison or in jail, Jonah, than they are to graduate from college if they're raised apart from their own uh, two parents. And by contrast, they're about four times more likely to graduate from college than they are to spend any time in jail or in prison if they're raised by um, their own intact, you know, family, their, their own mom and dad, basically. Um, and this this particular kind of, you know, social factor set of facts was, you know, extremely, I think, sobering and striking for me. But that just kind of gives you some sense of how it is the case that, um, you know, marriage matters for kids. Now, when it comes to adults, what we see is that um, on the financial front, for instance, you know, um, contra, there was a Bloomberg story, for instance, that was suggesting that basically women who get married and have kids are less likely to get rich was kind of the the headline in Bloomberg. Um, And 
just off off the mark because married women are 80% less likely to be poor um, compared to their unmarried peers, you know, net of controls for things like education um, and assets. Um, and both women and men in their 50s, you know, kind of getting closer to retirement have 10 times about the assets um, than their never married peers. So kind of the Andrew Tate perspective on riches and marriage and the perspective that Bloomberg was articulating, you know, could not have been you know, more off uh, the money Um, or the idea that kind of as one um, New York Times um, writer was uh, was advancing in a a New York Times piece, I think close to the pandemic, um, she was uh, telling us in her piece in the New York Times, I'm just going to read the quote here, as one writer, Amy Shearn, wrote in the New York Times, she said, married heterosexual motherhood in America is a game no one wins. Okay, so this is kind of the, the idea that we're getting um, in uh, in the New York Times, for instance. And what we see in the data, though, is that married women are about twice as likely to be very happy um, compared to unmarried women. And there is no variable in what's called the general social survey that better predicts women's happiness in America than a good marriage, not a good job, not a lot of money, not a good education, not frequent sex, not religious attendance, not self-rated health. So, um, you know, and this is all because as Aristotle said, you know, we're social animals. And so we are just much more likely to thrive when we have strong friendships and strong family relationships. And in all of this, it looks like marriage tends to matter the most. So just uh, on devil's advocate, what, what do you say to people who say there's a selection bias problem here? That the kinds of people who get married are the kinds of people who are hardworking and they're the kinds of people who are going to be self-satisfied and, and you know, other-directed. And so, of course, because they're the kind of people who get married, they say that their marriage is fine because they're, they're, they're positively oriented to the universe and to their communities and whatnot. So there's no question that today, especially, marriage is more selective. And what I mean by that is that the kinds of people who are getting married today tend to be better educated, more affluent, more religious, and also more conservative, actually. Um, probably also to have, you know, more, you know, social skills, you know, that might make them more attractive in some kind of meaningful way. So it is the case that the kinds of people who are getting married have, you know, endowments or characteristics that would make them, for instance, happier and, and more successful. Um, but we also see, you know, pretty good causal evidence too that when it comes to sort of the f- financial effect of marriage, that um, men who get married, for instance, tend to work more hours. They work more strategically. They're less likely to be fired, for instance, compared to their roughly equivalent single peers. They're less likely to quit a job, you know, unless they found a new job. Whereas single guys are just more likely to quit the job without any kind of consideration of their their job trajectory and even don't have twin study evidence on marriage and men and money indicating that twins who are married earn about 26% more money than their identical twins who are not married. So that's pretty strong evidence in my book. And on the happiness uh, front, we've got evidence from the economists, um, Sean Grover and John Helliwell, who are the controlling for happiness prior to marriage as a way of addressing this this challenge. And they're still finding, quote, a causal effect on happiness at all stages of marriage from prenuptial bliss to marriages of long duration, unquote. And they find that kind of the the marriage happiness premium is biggest in midlife. And a lot of us 
um, <laughs> middle-aged adults are are um, more susceptible to being, you know, not so happy. Um, so, yes, there's no doubt that there's a selection story here. It's important to acknowledge that, um, you know, marriage is not some magic potion. But I do think it's also important to just underline that married people are less lonely, they're more prosperous, they report more meaningful lives, they have more physical touch. Don't underestimate the importance of physical touch. I mean, I think we, mm-hmm. if you've got a dog, I know you've got a dog. <laughs> um, if you've got kids, you, I mean, my, you know, my kids thrive when there's touch. You know, mm-hmm. dogs thrive. We've got a new puppy. I mean, she literally wants to be cuddling with us all the time, right? So I don't think you can minimize the importance of having an, another person in your bed at night or another person to snuggle next to and watch, you know, a prime video with. Um, so anyways, these are the, I think these are the kinds of mechanisms that help to explain why, again, on average, married men and women are markedly happier in America today. Yeah, so um, a lot of the stuff that I know about marriage statistics either comes from you or comes from you secondhand, right? Someone learned them from you and all that. But, you know, one of the, the points I'll often make in talks is that all, holding for a lot, with lots of caveats and whatnot, that generally the gain on economic, the economic rewards for marriage in many cases are equal to or more than the equal economic rewards for college, um, or at least they're competitive, right? And you can have an argument, a, a statistics game of that. But think about how much this country celebrates going and encourages people to go to college versus how much it celebrates and encourages people to get married. And you can see, like, if you're a pure materialist, you would think, okay, any institution that's that helps people's, you know, rises people's living condition, we should be encouraging in this country. And yet, there's all these assumptions about how college does that for everybody, and it doesn't. And there are all these assumptions that marriage doesn't do it for anybody, and it does. And I think that the, the this gets to the sort of the elites part in your subtitle is that, and this is very much a Charles Murray point, you know, that the problem with our elites is they don't preach what they practice. Most elites, most economic elites, most successful people in this country have all sorts of bourgeois norms and values that help explain why they became successful. And, but then they're terrified of telling anybody else that they should do, that should follow a similar course. And I was just wondering, do you have, first of all, did I get any of that wrong? But second of all, do you have a story, like if someone said to you, how the hell did that happen? Like, what is your explanation for how we ended up where we are, where there was such sort of elite disregard in certain quarters, at least, for marriage as an institution? So again, I think, you know, when I first released the title, there was some pushback on the internet from journalists like Matt Iglesias, you know, sort of saying, what are you talking about elites? You know, why, why do we need to defy the elites? Um, they have got the strongest marriages, you know, so they're doing great. What are you talking about? And of course, the point I'm making in the book is not that we should not, you know, know how our elites are often flourishing in marriages, that they're not actually culturally making the case uh, for marriage in their, um, in their positions as journalists. Um, and there was a headline from Matt Iglesias and Fox sort of a while back kind of discounting the importance of marriage, ironically enough. Um, and there are plenty of obviously journalistic pieces that sort of minimize the importance and value of marriage or, or, or go after marriage as kind of an important institution. And we've talked about that. Um, in Hollywood, I talk about 
the, the film Marriage Story, um, which is uh, basically sponsored by Netflix. And kind of the irony there is that Marriage Story paints a very dark portrait of marriage in a kind of professional class couple moving from New York to L.A. And it's ironic because this critically acclaimed movie, again, is sponsored by Netflix. And the co-founder of Netflix is Reed Hastings, who writes his own autobiography about how he and his wife had struggled in their early years of marriage, sought counseling, kind of got things together, and by all accounts have been happily married, seems like, stably married for more than 30 years of two kids. So clearly kind of he's forging a strong and stable marriage, probably benefiting from the kinds of virtues you just touched on. And yet, you know, his platform is not, you know, really sort of modeling or articulating that um, those set of virtues and, and values um, either. So that's the challenge. Now, why are elites doing this? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons why they're doing this. One is that, you know, individualism in America is a pretty profound uh, cultural force. And I think elites tend to sort of value lots of choices and options. They, they don't want to kind of limit people's options and choices when it comes to relationships and marriage. Um, even though they're often very kind of prudential in how they're making those choices. I think a second issue is that they embrace a kind of progressive idea that would suggest that sort of every new thing that comes down the pike when it comes to relationships and family, whether it's the divorce revolution of the 1970s or polyamory now, you know, should be kind of like baptized or given some kind of recognition or status. And then there's a kind of, I think, you know, a contagion thing too, where um, you kind of say what you hear people around you saying. And so once certain kinds of progressive ideas get articulated in colleges and universities or on social media now, um, even if you kind of have some inclination that goes in a different direction in your private life, you're going to publicly affirm, you know, that progressive position on, on the latest family issue. So those are some of the dynamics, I think, that are playing out here. Um, and again, the tragic reality is that by talking left when it comes to family and then often walking right in their own personal lives in terms of marriage and family life, they're only kind of reinforcing their own privilege and that of their children. You know, um, they're maximizing their odds that their kids are going to go to the right schools, graduate from college, and then do well economically. But they're not supporting that institution, which is obviously stable marriage, that would help other Americans and their kids um, realize their best life and live the American dream, both educationally and economically. Yeah, to me, it's very analogous to the Silicon Valley guys who make their living off of right. Instagram, Twitter, phones, and all this kind of stuff, but don't let their own kids you be on any social media platforms or use phones more or exactly. screens more than an hour a week. And, and yet they'll testify before Congress about who are you to deny the freedom for people to do all this stuff when they deny that freedom to their own kids. And like, I mean, there are different arguments to be going on in there, but the, the sort of the, the disconnect is really kind of gross when you think about it. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think this is the challenge that, you know, um, the book is trying to mount basically is to encourage our uh, leading um, so the elites who kind of command the heights of the culture to just use their power and authority uh, more responsibly with an eye towards the common good um, when it comes to sort of how they talk about marriage and family and kind of how they advance um, a more family-friendly culture, you know, in Hollywood, in public schools, on Capitol Hill, and in the C-suite. I, I meant to ask this before we got into that, and I want to kick myself if I don't ask it now. So 
one of the things I learned from you, um, that's what the reference was earlier, um, is that men become wildly more productive economically after they get married and really after they have kids. And there are a lot of different theories about this, and they're not contradictory, but you know, one is like it's a socio, it's an evolutionary psychology thing, must provide for the family unit kind of thing. Another, which I have some sympathy for, is when you got dirty diapers and screaming kids around, the only legitimate excuse not to be helping is if you're working. Um, like going off and bowling with your friends when leaving your wife holding the bag is out, is just, it's, it's caddish, right? So like, it's the only out. And so I think some men become more workaholic <laughs> to avoid some of the household chores. Um, and anyway, there are a bunch of other theories that people have, have prompted for this. Is there, is there, is there one that you subscribe to more than others? Or do you think it's, or is there a consensus on where this effect comes from? And these are just the, repeat the effect you're, you're asking. Yeah, about so that men work hard, become more economically productive after they get married and after they have kids. And is it, is it largely a psychological evolutionary, psychological phenomenon, you know, like must get more mastodons, more mouths to feed, or is it a way to responsibly shirk domestic responsibilities or some other explanation? I think that there are ways in which work can become an escape for men, a kind of workist ethos, and that's obviously bad for really for them and for their wives and families. But we also see research like from uh, Sasha Kilwell at Harvard that tells us that sort of the male wage premium is actually highest for men who are married with their own biological kids in the household. And that suggests there's something kind of, you know, quite, um, you know, basic. Um, it's biological or cultural is obviously can't entirely tell about kind of having, you know, a wife and having your own kids in the household that kind of motivates a lot of men to be more responsible in general and to be more, uh, kind of focused when it comes to the workplace. And my late colleague, Stephen Nock, sociology at UVA kind of just talked about the sort of power of marriage in men's lives was his term to, uh, motivate uh, them in terms of both being more engaged in the workplace, but also kind of being more involved with certain types of civil society and with kinship or with kin networks more broadly. Yeah. I mean, um, did you read Russ Roberts book, wild problems? I have not read Russ's book. No, yeah. it's, it's, it, it's, it's a useful way of sort of thinking about things. And one of the things I love about Russ Roberts, um, who's a real mensch and a brilliant guy, um, is he's basically a recovering economist and he's, realizing, I mean, he was never a homo economicus guy, pure one, because no, that's always been a straw man kind of thing. But uh, he's re realizing that like a lot of the most important things have more to do with morality, philosophy, you know, big picture religion, that kind of stuff. And it's fun to see him question his priors because he's really intellectually honest about all that. And anyway, one of his points in Wild Problems is that there are just simply some decisions where you have to you have to take the leap because, you know, once you take the leap, you become a different person at, in the process. And, you know, one of the philosophers he quotes, you know, talks about the vampire problem is that when you're, when it's proposed to you to become a vampire, you say, hell no, that's disgusting. Why would I want to live off the, off of others and only be able to live at night and whatnot. But then once you become a vampire, you kind of dig it. 
And this is not to say that marriage is like becoming a vampire, right? But it is to say that you have to burn your ships to get married. And once you burn your ships, you actually, and you go through the Narnian wardrobe or whatever metaphor you want to use, when you get to the other side, you become a different person. And we know from a lot of data that happier people are other directed, happier people are people who feel needed, that have a sense of earned success. And marriage and kids is like the institution for buying that stuff. But it's very hard to convince people. It's not like a, you're not you're not going to become a vampire. You're going to become this happy person, but you have to get the you have to put away childish things. So two two big quick points here, and they just dovetail what you said. But the the first point obviously is that a lot of Americans either implicitly or explicitly think that kind of living for themselves, living in the moment, you know, from one dopamine hit to the other, or you know, just for massive career success, is the way you know to build a good life. And yet we know that. Um, earn success and living for others, um, in this case, particularly for a wife and kids or for a husband and kids, is the way that people are most likely to find happiness. And so the paradox of happiness is directly pursuing happiness tends to lead to misery. Directly pursuing your own selfish, short-term well-being tends to lead to misery. We can see that across this culture today. Death to despair is one example. By contrast, kind of Building a good life and living for others in the context of a strong marriage and family is the most kind of reliable path to being happy. But, and I think this is the rub, right? It's important um, to pick well. So to kind of like to go through that Narnian closet, you know, or to go through, you know, that marriage ceremony coming through, you know, from one side through the next, you know, post vows, right? If you've made a bad selection, someone who isn't a, a woman or a man of, of good character, then clearly, you know, it's going to be uh, misery. Um, and then to recognize, too, that we all struggle to um, live virtuous lives. And so there's a continual process of trying to become a better husband and a better wife, better father and a better mother. And so this is why surrounding yourself with friends and family members who take their marriages seriously, their families seriously. Um, I talk about birds of a feather flock together. We know from the work of Nicholas Christakis at Yale, for instance, that divorce is heavily networked. So if your friends are getting divorced in the face of ordinary marital difficulties, your odds of getting divorced are, are super high. By contrast, if your friends and family are managing to navigate that ordinary challenges, difficulties, disappointments of married life without landing divorce court, your odds of succeeding at marriage are, are a lot higher. So um, the point I'm getting at is that marriage often transforms us for the better and for the good and makes us happier, but it's predicated, I think, on having the right understanding of marriage, embracing some classic norms about things like fidelity and commitment, and surrounding yourselves with people who are with you and for you as married, um, you know, married men and women. I've, I often think about, so my wife wanted to elope when we were getting married and I was like, I can't do that. My brother eloped. <laughs> we need to, my parents need one marriage, you know, one wedding <laughs> um, to, to go to. And, um, and I think about it all and she just, she's one of nine kids. She's like putting her family through another wedding. She just, you know, she just wanted, let's just do this. And, and I won the argument and I'm really glad I did. And, um, and one of the things, again, I, I got from you is the importance of, I, so I'm not saying that eloping is 
inherently bad. And I understand people have been divorced. Their second marriages, eloping makes a lot of sense. Or just going down to city hall with some friends. Different horses for different courses. I'm not trying to be super judgy about all of this. It's also a big financial expenditure. But there's a real value in having your friends and family show up and see you make this public promise to somebody else. Because promises made in public are much harder to break and you take more seriously than promises made in effect in secret. And, you know, this point about divorces being highly networked, it reminds me of my friend David Bonson. He wrote this book years ago about the financial crisis. And one of the takeaways was, was that it's sort of a social contagion that if you know a lot of people who are defaulting on their mortgages, the taboo against defaulting on your mortgage starts to evaporate. Similarly, if you know a lot of people who default on their marriages, it, it just the barrier, the price, the social price of giving up on your marriage is much higher if you're the only one doing it, versus rather than it just being normalized. No, 100%. And, and obviously, I can imagine what the critic is thinking right now listening to the two of us, you know, um, long married guys, you know, well, you know, what about those situations where there's domestic violence? And, and that's obviously a, a, an important rejoinder. But it, it's important just to recognize and realize that in the main, what we see in uh, married couples today in America, and what I talk about in my book, is that if you surround yourself with people who are kind of on team marriage and family, particularly in a religious context, you're more likely to be happily married. You're more likely to be steering clear of divorce court. You're even more likely today to be having sex on a regular basis compared to your secular peers. And so... Um, in the main, I would say the upsides are pretty high for married couples who are kind of situating themselves in a social network that um, supports and affirms marriage rather than the opposite. You, may, you raise a good point. People who are hostile to your argument. They're going to be hostile to this conversation. I don't really care that much. But it, at the same time, you know, we should point out that, like, we are speaking in broad generalizations and the argument about, like, you know, I, I find, you know, when, when you say marriage is good and someone says, well, what about places, institutions, you know, what about marriages where there's spousal abuse or wife battery or whatever? Like, yeah, that's terrible. Send the guy to jail. I mean, like it, 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 to me, right. I mean, it's like, right. I can point out there have been lots of cases in, in just numerical terms of school teachers who have molested kids. That's not an argument against having schools sure, or having right. teachers, right? I mean, right. you say right. you punish norm violations, and I'm a big punish the norm violations guy. Um, but that's not like the argument that the norm violations prove you shouldn't have the norm it just has no purchase with me. If we shouldn't have the norm, tell me why we don't, we shouldn't have the norm. But don't tell me why people don't, people's failure to live up to it proves that we shouldn't have it at all. That's it's just a completely logical, different argument. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, you've got to kind of recognize and realize that, you know, um, the, the point of institution is to reinforce a certain set of common norms. And there are going to be people who, you know, break those norms or hypocrites or violate the norms. Um, but, you know, that doesn't kind of undercut the value of the institution itself. And I think what people often fail to realize is that there are a lot of voices out there in the culture today that would sort of support, like, you know, the norm of going to college um, and would appreciate and recognize that the institution of, you know, a college is valuable. And, and yeah, sure, you could go to the library, 
Jonah, and you could kind of sit down at the library and you could gather books around. You could get on the internet nowadays with computer at the library and you could kind of assemble for yourself a, a world-class education, right? But for most of us, if we're interested in higher education, it's, it's easier to go to a college, you know, and get a BA or a PhD in something um, and learn something in that kind of institutionalized way. And so there are people, many on the left, who certainly appreciate the value of college um, and higher education more generally. But ironically, don't appreciate or understand how kind of the norms and customs, the laws that have surrounded marriage have tended to facilitate forging stronger and more stable relationships, both for adults and kids. So it's funny, I thought you were going to go in a slightly different direction with the college analogy, because there's also this thing, you know, it's called the sheepskin effect, which I'm sure you've heard, right? And so it turns out that the value of a degree has more to do with social networking and, 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 validation than the actual education you get out of it. At least that's the argument. And I would argue that there's a sheepskin effect, so to speak, about marriage. You're sending a signal about the kind of person you are in terms of your ability to make long-term commitments if you actually put a ring on it, right? And which is different than, well, I've been in a committed relationship for a long time, but we don't we don't feel like we need to be married. You know, that's sending a different cultural signal to the people around you. And one one key difference between cohabitation and marriage, obviously, even today, is that there are f- way fewer norms and customs surrounding cohabitation compared to marriage. And the terms of entry in particular are very different, right? So when you're cohabiting with someone, oftentimes people, you know, get together and then they start, you know, sharing an apartment, maybe one weekend a month, and then, you know, two weeks out of a month, and then they're just living together. And there's never been like this group of people, you know, friends and family looking on with, you know, a gaze of adoration with music in the, you know, in the background and, and vows being exchanged as they kind of walk down that apartment hallway with their, you know, with their (laughs) boxes and, and suitcases on that first weekend, right? When they're moving in together. Um, what's striking too, when you ask traveling couples, like, when did you begin living together? Oftentimes they would tell, they would give, you know, a, <laughs> a survey interviewer different dates, right? So it's just mm. kind of the whole difference between a, a wedding and, you know, moving in together could not be more different from a sociological vantage point. And that then points to some differences in the experience of cohabitation and marriage that tell us that kind of that meaning and commitment and mutual trust and kind of common normative understandings are just much more likely to be found in a marriage than they are in living together. And that's one reason why marriages are stronger, uh, more stable, and generally more satisfying than cohabiting relationships. Yeah. Did you see there was this Wall Street Journal piece uh, a month ago, two months ago, about the rise in stay-at-home girlfriends? Yes. And it was, I, it was funny. I shared it with several female friends of mine, and they were all horrified by it um in a sort of jokey kind of way because all the advantages of marriage for the man none of the advantages of marriage really for the none of the material advantages of of marriage long term for the woman and like a couple like a week later there was just some great letters to the editor in the wall street journal where like financial advisors were just saying you do realize how stupid this is and um anyway, it gets me to this thing i you know i don't know how plugged in you are with sort of right-wing conservative intellectual history or any of that kind of stuff. And so I don't want to sort of take you off guard here, but, you know, I have this longstanding gripe about the way we use the term neoconservative to describe foreign policy stuff, right? And the original neoconservatives were people like Irving Kristol, Ed Banfield, um, Nathan Glazer, 
you know, people who are disillusioned by the New Deal or the Great Society because of overreach, overstretch, James Q. Wilson, these kinds of people. And what they did is as they move, as they were disillusioned with the unintended consequences of utopian liberalism, uh, they brought to bear social science and the language of social science to public policy questions from a conservative perspective. And one of the things that Irving Kristol used to say is uh, what neoconservatism did was in part uh, prove, use, use regression analysis to prove that your grandmother was right. 100%. <laughs> right. And I'm just wondering, like, how much what you're doing fits into, into that mold? Because, like, my grandmother would say, well, of course you should get married. What do you want people to, th what do you think people are going to think about you if you don't get married? What's wrong with you? Be a man. And now you have to provide, you know, 300 pages of analysis gleaned from the general social science survey right, <laughs> to right. say grandma was right. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, that's very true. Uh, but I would also sort of say it's important to kind of understand, you know, why we've gotten to this moment where marriage is kind of a matter of controversy rather than common sense, right? And we talked about that at the beginning in terms of the shifts in the culture, shifts in the economy, shifts in public policy, and now I think shifts in technology that have made forging good dating relationships harder, um, getting married harder, and have made people more skeptical about the institution and the opposite sex. So we're just kind of living in a moment where, as I said before, I think we're sort of seeing the closing of the American heart mm -hmm. unfold for a large minority of young adults. I'm projecting that about one third of young adults in their 20s will never marry, kind of never been at this place in our culture you know, before. And so I'm hoping that I'm kind of can motivate some young adults to kind of basically in the face of this, in a sense, mini demographic tsunami or mini family tsunami kind of heading our way across the Pacific from, you know, Japan and South Korea, where it's gotten, you know, the most traction so far um, or where it's kind of hit first um, to sort of head to higher ground. Mm -hmm. And to, to be much more deliberate about, you know, recognizing that when you're in college, you know, look around, you might find someone to be a great spouse. Um, when you're in the workplace in your early 20s, you know, look around. Um, if you're at all religious, invest in your church, your synagogue, you know, your temple, um, because you're likely to find someone there who shares your values and would be a good spouse. Um, and so I think part of like the point of all of this is not just to sort of echo our grandmothers, mm -hmm. but to recognize that we're in a particularly, I think, difficult moment for young adults today. And in this difficult moment, we need to kind of give them an encouragement to be much more aggressive about, you know, things like dating and being um, intentional about their relationships and to kind of not listen to the voices in the culture that tell them that marriage is bad or they should focus on their career. Um, they should wait until they're 30 to get <laughs> or to put a ring on it. Um, but instead to recognize that, you know, in your 20s, you're often kind of exposed to lots of good options and, um, and you need to get off your phone and uh, to get out there lest you end up um, like one of those growing numbers of permanent bachelors and bachelorettes who are going to be um, increasingly common, at least for the short term, you know, given all the larger economic, cultural, legal and, and now technological trends washing over our society. All right, I can talk more, but this was that was a perfect last answer. Got at the hour mark, so <laughs> we can take it from there. I'm sure you got a crazy book tour schedule ahead of you. Um, Brad Wilcox, thanks so much for doing this. Again, the book is "Get Married: Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization." Thanks for being on the remnant. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. 
Okay, so Brad has left the studio. And um, again, as I said, I, I could do this for a while. I mean, I think people know out there that I am kind of a, a big daydreamer about a, a, a you know zombie apocalypse type scenarios. And it kind of comes out of you know my thinking about Suicide of the West, my last book. And I don't know, and I'll, I'll probably talk more about this on the solo, so I don't want to just riff here. But like one way to think about life to be a little existentialist, a little nihilist in the sense that realizing that you're kind of alone in the universe and the only way you can make a go of it is by teaming up with people. And, you know, people who are alone in the zombie apocalypse, they die out, right? People are alone in any sort of post-nuclear, you know, Armageddon kind of scenario, they tend to die out. The people who make it are the ones who realize that other people are a resource and that that teamwork makes the dream work kind of thing. And I think, obviously, you can take this analogy way too far. But the successful people in life, and I don't necessarily mean just financially successful, though I think they're disproportionately financially successful. The emotionally successful people in life, the spiritually successful people in life, are the ones who find, first of all, someone to share their life with and then make people, as in kids, um, to share it even more and then to, you know, you know, pass things on to. And, um, but also friends and colleagues and, um, and institutions. I am very much about individual liberty. I think I've been pretty clear about that. I'm very much into, you know, um, constitutional order and the individual pursuit of happiness and all of that kind of thing. And I think a lot of people who think I'm some sort of hyper libertarian individualist guy in my philosophy miss the point that I've always been very clear that the individual pursuit of happiness almost invariably with, you know, obviously there are exceptions, but almost invariably means pursuing life in a way where you get to join communities or institutions, um, or relationships that make you happy. Um, you know, the pursuit of happiness is individual. The realization of happiness is plural and it really does begin with marriage. Now marriage isn't right for everybody and not, and I I think Brad is very smart and good to say certain that you have to choose well. And, um, and I think that's right. And choose well doesn't necessarily mean choose someone who's rich or someone who's pretty or someone who's handsome or someone with the right degree. It means choosing someone of good character. It means choosing someone who sees the universe in ways that may not be identical to yours, but are complementary to yours. And, um, and I mean complementary in the correctly spelled L-E version. Um, and um, anyway, that's sort of what comes through to me about all this stuff. And that's what I was sort of getting at with the neocon thing is that a lot of these, insti- a lot of these cultural norms and practices survived and thrived over time precisely because they gave a societal quote unquote, you know, not necessarily evolutionary in the biological sense, though also in the biological sense, but in the sort of social cultural sense, they, they provided real advantages and they get embedded in norms and customs and understandings about how the way the world, about the way the world works that get passed on from grandmothers and grandfathers, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And they may not have all of the grand arguments and data at their fingertips, but at the same time, they have the advantage of actually knowing that some of these insights are obvious. 
and proven by time. And, um, and I think that, you know, Brad's work, which is really important, very useful, um, is sort of, it's, it's social scientists coming to the rescue as those sorts of old fashioned insights have been sort of, uh, looked down upon and, and, and discarded by a lot of the culture. Um, anyway, enough of me bloviating. Thank you for listening. And, um, uh, if you don't subscribe to the dispatch, please give us a try and, um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.